Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Fasting Nothing is more misunderstood today than Christian asceticism, especially seasons of fasting. Some think that fasting is a way to please God and to show Him how good we are. Others disapprove of this type of thinking, supposing those who think so have a wrong understanding of God and that God does not desire that we fast, for that would be a works-based salvation, meaning salvation is on us and not on God. Yet still, Some think that periods of fasting indicate that the churches who do so are unnecessarily legalistic, and thus imposing a fast encroaches upon the freedom we have in Christ. Others think that fasting by itself makes them more spiritual. All these things just mentioned are misconceptions. What? Surely one of the conceptions just mentioned must be the right way to approach fasting. The answer to that is no. This is not how fasting was ever understood in the early church. And if not, then any other thinking is an innovation. So how did the earliest Christians understand fasting? To get to the answer requires us to consider what practices are totally inseparable from the Christian faith. The first practice that is inseparable from the Christian faith is prayer. Then we also know of almsgiving, that is, of giving to those who are less fortunate. Our Lord Jesus taught us how we should practice both of these in the Sermon on the Mount. But right after them, our Lord Jesus also taught us how we should fast, saying, When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. From Matthew chapter 6 verses 16 through 18. Then later on in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples of John the Baptist came to him and asked him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 15. So here, our Lord Jesus points out that one day his own followers will practice fasting. Now, it should be noted that there was more than one type of fasting practiced in the early church. This episode covers that type of fasting, which readily comes to mind when we hear the word fasting, which are seasons for fasting. By seasons, I mean time periods. So seasonal fasting means regular times where the church practices fasting, such as on specific days of the week, month, or year. What our Lord Jesus is referring to in both of these passages are instructions for seasonal fasting. 
Other parts of the New Testament also mention seasonal fasting. The Apostle Paul in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 5, when speaking about the relationship between husbands and wives, points out that there are times where they should give themselves to fasting and prayer, meaning this was common Christian practice. With all this talk of seasonal fasting, do we know when Christians practiced fasting? Yes. In a very early Christian text called the Didache, which is the earliest Christian text outside of the New Testament, and which was written before some of the later books in the New Testament, it describes that Christians fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. This will be the first known seasonal type of fasting in the history of the church. This practice is also referenced with increasing frequency as we head into the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Later on, more seasonal fasts were incorporated in the church, as they reflected on the life and work of our Lord Jesus. For example, the Great Lent harkens back to the 40 days that our Lord fasted in the wilderness following his baptism. Now, what is the point for all this? We get an idea of the goal of fasting by the word the early church used to describe fasting, among other practices, which is the word ascesis. Ascesis means exercise, striving, or practice. This type of exercise is for the purpose of developing self-discipline in order to help us achieve a goal. So what was the goal? What the goals of fasting were in the early church is first clearly explained in the second century book, The Shepherd of Hermas. This peculiar book, which was also wildly popular in the early church, communicates Christian theology in the form of imagery. The book is divided into three large sections, visions, mandates, and parables. In the fifth parable, true fasting is explored. The understanding of fasting is communicated in the image of a field, a vineyard, a master, and his slave. The parable begins saying, As I was fasting while sitting on a certain mountain and giving thanks to the Lord for all that he had done for me, I saw the shepherd sitting next to me, and he said, Why have you come here so early? Because, sir, I replied, I have a station. What, he said, is a station? Sir, I replied, I am fasting. And what, he continued, is this fast you are keeping? I am fasting, sir, I responded, just as I have been accustomed to. You do not know, he said, how to fast to God, and this useless fast that you are keeping for him is not a fast. Sir, I said, why are you saying this? I am telling you, he said, that even though you think you are fasting, this is not a fast. But I will teach you what a complete and acceptable fast to the Lord is. Yes, sir, I said. You will make me happy if I may learn about the fast acceptable to God. Listen, he said. God does not desire such a worthless fast as this. For by fasting to God in this manner, you are accomplishing nothing with respect to righteousness. But keep a fast to God in this way. Commit no evil in your life, and serve the Lord with a clean heart. Keep his commandments, and walk in his ordinances, and do not permit any evil desire to enter your heart, and believe in God. And if you do these things and fear him, and restrain yourself from every evil deed, you will lift to God. And if you do these things, you will complete a fast that is great and acceptable to God. Listen to the parable that I am about to tell you about fasting. A certain man had a field and many slaves, and in a part of the field he planted a vineyard, 
And as he was going away on a journey, he chose a certain slave who was trustworthy and pleasing to him and called him over and said to him, Take this vineyard that I have planted and fence it in until I return, but do not do anything else to the vineyard. Obey this command of mine and you will gain your freedom from me. Then the slave's master went away on a journey. When he had gone, the slave took him fenced in the vineyard. When he finished fencing in the vineyard, he noticed that the vineyard was full of weeds. So he thought to himself, saying, This command of the Lord I have carried out. Next, I will cultivate this vineyard. Indeed, it will look better after it is cultivated. And having no weeds, it will yield more fruit, because it will not be choked by weeds. So he took and cultivated the vineyard, and pulled out all the weeds that were in the vineyard, and the vineyard was very attractive and flourishing, because no weeds were choking it. Some time later, the master of the slave and of the field returned, and he went to the vineyard. And when he saw the vineyard fenced in neatly and cultivated as well, and all the weeds pulled out, and the vineyard flourishing, he rejoiced greatly at what his slave had done. So he called his beloved son, who was his heir, and his friends, who were his advisors, and told them what he had commanded his servant to do, and what he had found done. And they congratulated the slave on the testimony that his master gave him. And he said to them, I promised this slave his freedom if he obeyed the command that I gave him. He has obeyed my command, and has to my great pleasure done a great job in the vineyard besides. Therefore, in return for this work that he has done, I wish to make him joint heir with my son, because when the good idea occurred to him, he did not ignore it, but did it. The master's son agreed with his decision that the slave should become joint heir with the son. A few days later, his master gave a feast and sent him a considerable amount of food from the feast. But when the slave received the food sent to him by the master, he took enough for himself and distributed the rest to his fellow slaves. And when his fellow servants received the food, they rejoiced and began to pray for him, in order that he might find even greater favor with the master, because he had treated them so well. His master heard about all these things that had happened, and again he rejoiced greatly at his conduct. Calling together again his friends and son, he reported to them what the slave had done with the food that he had received, and they all the more heartily approved of the slave's being made a joint heir with his son. Now, as mentioned earlier, these aims of fasting were commit no evil in your life and serve the Lord with a clean heart, keep his commandments and walk in his ordinances, and do not permit any evil desire to enter your heart and believe in God. And if you do these things and fear him and restrain yourself from every evil deed, you will live to God. And if you do these things, you will complete a fast that is great and acceptable to God. Now, these aims of fasting must be understood in the context of the conception of the human being in the mind of the early church, which was discussed in detail in an earlier episode of this podcast. The early church's conception of the human being was that the human has three aspects, the rational soul, which includes the mind, the emotions, and the appetites. The appetites are the impulses and urges of the body, and the proper ordering of the body is for the rational soul to rule the appetites by putting them under submission so that they do not overpower the rational soul. When the impulses and appetites rule over the rational soul with the mind, this is what leads to sin. Fasting was a way to deny the body its desires that arise from the appetites in order to practice keeping the rational soul with its mind set upon God 
and the way of life he has commanded us. Think about this. The grand majority of all sins come when the mind is overpowered and forced to become the servant of the desires that arise from the appetites. For example, gluttony comes when we give in to the urge to eat, even when we have eaten what is proper to keep us healthy. Sexual sins come when we let lust overpower our mind instead of reining it in and applying it properly within the context of marriage. Envy desires what others have. Greed also comes when we desire many material things that are way beyond those that satisfy our essential needs. Anger is the total shutting down of the mind and the aligning of the emotions to the appetites to the detriment of the mind. The mind literally becomes the servant, the slave of the appetites. This is why it leads to so many other sins, especially ones that end in injury and death. Sloth, which is not due to desire, is a failure of the mind to move the rest of the person to work towards spiritual growth. Or, if you think about it, it is a lack of desire to do what is good. This makes it even deadlier than the appetites overpowering the mind, because the mind is not functioning properly, even when there is necessarily no desire involved. Pride, which is the deadliest of all the sins, is when we give our selfish desires first place over everything else to the point that it blinds the rational mind from our own limitations. This is where sin totally consumes the individual. So with that in mind, let's continue with the fifth parable from the Shepherd of Hermas. Sir, I said, I do not understand nor am I able to comprehend these parables unless you explain them to me. I will explain everything to you, he said, and will interpret for you whatever I say to you. Keep the Lord's commandments, and you will be pleasing to him, and will be enrolled among the number of those who keep his commandments. But if you do anything good beyond God's commandment, you will gain greater glory for yourself, and will be more honored in God's sight than you otherwise would have been. So if while keeping God's commandments you also add these services, you will rejoice, if you keep them in accordance with my commandment. I said to him, Sir, whatever you command me, I will keep, for I know that you are with me. I will be with you, he said, because you have such a zeal for doing good. Indeed, I will be with all those, he said, who have a zeal such as this. This fasting, he said, is very good if you keep the Lord's commandments. This, therefore, is how you must keep this fast that you are about to keep. First of all, guard against every evil word and every evil desire, and cleanse your heart of all the vanities of this world. If you observe these things, this fast of yours will be perfect. And this is what you must do. When you have completed what has been written, you must taste nothing except bread and water on that day on which you fast then you must estimate the cost of the food you would have eaten on that day on which you intend to fast, and give it to a widow or an orphan or someone in need. In this way, you will become humble-minded, so that as a result of your humble-mindedness, the one who receives may satisfy his own soul and pray to the Lord on your behalf. If then you complete the fast in this way, as I have commanded you, your sacrifice will be acceptable in God's sight, and this fast will be recorded and the service performed in this way is beautiful and joyous and acceptable to the Lord. This is how you must observe these things with your children and your whole household, and in observing them, you will be blessed. Indeed, all those who hear and observe them will be blessed, and whatever they ask from the Lord, they will receive. 
I urgently asked him to explain to me the parable of the field and the master and the vineyard and the slave who fenced in the vineyard and the fences and the weeds that were pulled up out of the vineyard and the son and the friends who were advisers, for I understood that all these things are a parable. But he answered and said to me, You are exceedingly arrogant in asking questions. You ought not, he said, to ask any questions at all. For if it is necessary for something to be explained to you, it will be explained. I said to him, Sir, whatever you show me and do not explain, I will have seen in vain, and will not understand what it is. In the same way, if you tell me parables and do not interpret them, I will have heard something from you in vain. Now, it must be explained at this point that this text is not anti-intellectual, but a warning to keep the intellect and right living integrated as one. Indeed, Every vision, mandate, and parable in this book is explained at length so that the reader may understand. And if you want to do an interesting activity while reading the earliest Christian texts, which collectively are called the Apostolic Fathers, to which this book belongs, get a highlighter and highlight every single instance of the word understanding, and you will find that it is one of the most frequent words in this group of writings, which are primarily pastoral. And because they are pastoral, they emphasize the role of understanding to right living. Now, it must be noted that the parable could also be interpreted in another way. The field is us, and the rooting out of the weeds is the controlling of the appetites, and the slave is the mind that rules the appetites, and that the result of fasting is that we rule ourselves better by keeping our appetites at bay, and thus in that way providing less occasion for the body to sin. So now we know what the goal of fasting is, but how do we properly practice it? We can find the answer to that in another text, this time from the early 5th century, called the Conferences of John Cashin. In the first conference, Cashin and another person asked a certain Abba Moses of Scetus, which is a desert in Egypt, the questions, what is ascesis, asceticism, and by extension fasting, and how do we properly practice it? Abba Moses answers them saying, perfection then is clearly not achieved simply by being naked, by the lack of wealth, or by the rejection of honors, unless there is also that love whose ingredients the apostle described and which is to be found solely in purity of heart not to be jealous, not be puffed up, not to act heedlessly, not to seek what does not belong to one, nor to rejoice, not to rejoice over some injustice, not to plan evil. What is this and its like, if not the continuous offering to God of a heart perfect and truly pure, a heart kept free of all disturbance? Everything we do, our every objective, must be undertaken for the sake of this purity of heart, this is why we take on loneliness, fasting, vigils, work, nakedness. For this we must practice the reading of the scripture together with all the other virtuous activities. And we do so to trap and to hold our hearts free of the harm of every dangerous passion and in order to rise step by step to the high points of love. It may be that some good and necessary task prevents us from achieving fully all that we set out to do. Let us not on this account give way to sadness or anger or indignation, since it was precisely to repel these that we would have done what in fact we were compelled to omit. What we gain from fasting does not compensate for what we lose through anger. Our profit from scriptural reading in no way equals the damage we cause ourselves by showing contempt for a brother. 
We must practice fasting vigils withdrawal and the meditation of scripture as activities which are subordinate to our main objective, purity of heart, that is to say, love. And we must never disturb this principal virtue for the sake of those others. If this virtue remains whole and unharmed within us, nothing can injure us, not even if we are forced to omit any of those other subordinate virtues. Nor will it be of any use to have practiced all these latter if there is missing in us that principal objective for the sake of which all else is undertaken. A worker takes the trouble to get hold of the instruments that he requires. He does so not simply to have them and not use them, nor is there any profit for him in merely possessing the instruments. What he wants is with their help to produce the crafted objective for which these are the efficient means. In the same way, fasting, vigils, scriptural meditation, nakedness, and total deprivation do not constitute perfection, but are the means to perfection. They are not themselves the end point of a discipline, but an end is attained through them. To practice them will therefore be useless if someone, instead of regarding these as means to an end, is satisfied to regard them as the highest good. One will possess the instruments of a profession without knowing the end where the hoped-for fruit is to be found. And so, anything which can trouble the purity and the peace of our heart must be avoided as something very dangerous, regardless of how useful and necessary it might actually seem to be. With this for a rule, we will be able to avoid the lack of concentration which comes as the mind follows highways and byways, and we will be able to go with an assured sense of direction toward our longed-for goal. To cling to God and to the things of God, this must be our major effort. This must be the road that the heart follows unswervingly. Any diversion, however impressive, must be regarded as secondary, low-grade, and certainly dangerous. From the Conferences of John Cashin, First Conference, Sections 6-8 through eight. Now we must consider what this means for us if we want to take the insights of the early church and apply them to our own lives. It is very clear that the early church's fasting was closely tied to its understanding of what the human being is as we explored above. Its main objective was to deny the appetites their desires in order to strengthen the soul in its resolve to grow in the way of Christ. From numerous other texts, we know that the early church gave up all meat, dairy, and eggs, in short, all animal products, and did not eat any food for a specific amount of time on days they were fasting. This is also how modern Orthodox Christians fast. But something must be made clear. In the early church, most people did not eat meat for the majority of the year, including during seasons of fasting. At certain times of the year, there were celebrations, festivals, carnivals. Carnival comes from the Latin word carne, which means meat, because at carnivals, people ate meat. Meat was not easy for regular people to acquire. This is why those special occasions were called carnivals, because most people also farmed their own food in the days of the early church, probably around 95% in the smaller cities and around 80% in the larger cities. And cattle and other animals were expensive. This is why meat was only eaten regularly by the very rich and kings. Interestingly enough, gout, which is an effect of eating too much meat, was called the disease of kings, or rich man's disease. 
to highlight that this was almost not present in regular people because they did not regularly eat meat. So what fasting looked like was much different than what we think it was, which is why the people practiced abstaining from food altogether for a certain amount of time, usually until the afternoon, around 3 o'clock, or early evening, around 6 o'clock, on days of fasting because this way it allowed people to practice denying the appetites and thus bringing the body into control. So how should we take the goal of fasting in the early church and apply it to our own spiritual growth today? Number one, get pastoral advice from your father confessor. Fasting is a serious practice because it aims to put under control that which is most difficult to put under control, namely ourselves. As such, fasting is not to be entered full blast suddenly. I don't know any priest who teaches his spiritual children to begin fasting all the seasons of fasting immediately and to the full degree, especially when they're very young. Rather, what I have seen is training children, usually tweens, by having them begin giving up meat. This can continue for a couple of years. Then he can have them give up milk and cheese, so that by their late teens they are fasting. The same is true for practicing abstaining from food up until a certain time of day. It is a gradual rising of asceticism that is of exercise. Exercise with the goal of giving the rational soul mastery over the appetites of the body so that we can learn to live in accordance with Christ more fully. So in this process of training slowly, by the time people get to their late teens, they can start fasting all the fasts fully. When you will eventually fully fast if you are healthy, it will mean giving up animal products, meat, dairy, and eggs. But in addition to this, following the goal of fasting, which is to deny the appetites and desires of the body in order to focus the soul on God, this would mean choosing to give up other things that gratify the appetites. This can include giving up television, social media, music, and other forms of entertainment during periods of fasting. And this is certainly in keeping with the spirit of fasting as practiced in the early church. But this may sound very tough to some of you. No doubt it is. And it should not be pursued without a father confessor to whom you are a disciple, who knows what you are like, and who knows what push will cause you to grow, and what push will break you. Some sadly think that fasting is legalistic. So they take the letter of it, which is to abstain from animal products, and follow that closely, so that they buy soy milk, vegan cheese, vegan mayonnaise, and I've even seen vegan meat, which tastes similar to the real thing. But look at what's happened. They have not practiced denying the body its appetites and desires. Fasting is not legalistic, but it is oriented toward the goal of denying the body its appetites and desires so that the rational soul can focus on God. But we should not judge these people. This is how they have been taught. And also, I have seen some of these people, for whom it is already a struggle to eat the same products with different ingredients, even finding them, and in that way, they too in a sense practice denying the body its appetites and desires, albeit to a much lesser degree. But back to these new forms of entertainment, which are things that can fulfill our desires. These are things that we have that the early Christians did not have, but since they are fulfillments of desire, 
then these are things we can fast from, and it achieves the exact goal of fasting, which is to control the desires and submit them to our wills to live a life focused on God. 3. Today we don't farm our own food, but the grand majority of what we eat is full of animal products. Even plain mashed potatoes have milk in them. For that reason, it actually takes thinking and labor to be able to fast. The fact that it takes this type of labor today becomes an ascetic action itself, which is a prelude to fasting. 4. Most importantly of all, pray more and pray deeper when you are fasting. After all, as was clear earlier, fasting provides a way for the rational soul, the mind, to strengthen its resolve in growing to live a life according to Christ by focusing on weeding out certain vices and cultivating virtues that bring us to resemble our Lord Jesus to make us more Christ-like. And 5. Take the money you save by fasting and donate it to the poor. This practice was intimately connected to fasting in the early church. We have all but forgotten this. It can be done fairly easily by tracking your grocery expenses during months we are not fasting, and then by calculating the grocery expenses during months we are fasting. Take the estimated difference, even if it is small, and donate it if you have the ability to. Now, for many Christians, whether apostolic or Protestant, this understanding of fasting is quite different than what they supposed. But the texts read at length earlier are but two that reveal the universal understanding of the early church on fasting. But now, as we do in so many episodes, let us consider whether the thinking of the early church can engage with modern fields of knowledge on the topic of fasting, which can potentially provide us with more applications for our practice of fasting. The physical effects of intermittent fasting are well documented in modern research. But are there any other types of effects fasting has other than those explained in the Church Fathers? Interestingly enough, recent research has found something. In an article titled, Chronic Intermittent Fasting Improves Cognitive Functions and Brain Structures in Mice, by Li, Wang, and So, which you can find online in the U.S. National Library of Medicine and the National Institutes of Health, which is linked in the description of this episode, they document their findings on several effects of intermittent fasting. To make sure we engage the early church properly with modern fields of knowledge, we need to make sure we are describing the same things. So we need to define what intermittent fasting is. The study noted that intermittent fasting is the cycle of eating less food on one day and eating normally the following day. Outside of this study, some of you may be familiar with a type of intermittent fasting practiced for health and exercise reasons, which is the 16 to 8 ratio. For 16 hours a day, no food is eaten, including the time we are asleep, and only within an 8-hour window can we eat. Both the fasting mentioned in the article we will explore now and the popular health practice are similar to the types of fasting practiced by the early church. The church's fasts on Wednesday and Friday are similar to the intermittent fasting mentioned in the article. The 16 to 8 ratio of intermittent fasting is similar to fasting seasons such as Lent, where we fast completely from food up to a certain time of day and then eat food in a certain window of time. It should be noted that there are differences. Because the early church did not eat animal-based products at all during its fasts, except for fish during some fasts introduced later in the history of the church. In addition, The early church also practiced abstaining from food up to a certain time of day, and not just ate during a window. 
This is because the main goal of fasting is to deny the appetites their desires in order to strengthen the rational soul over the appetites. But the article by Li Wang and So observes some other effects of fasting which can have applicability to us. The study found that intermittent fasting improves cognitive functions such as memory, processing, and learning. The scientists tested this by putting the mice through a maze test and found that those that were intermittently fasting learned how to deal with the maze faster than the other mice. They also found that intermittent fasting reduced oxidative stress. Oxidative stress over time can hurt cognitive functioning. If intermittent fasting reduces some types of oxidative stress, it provides some type of protection for cognitive functioning, which means intermittent fasting protects learning and memory. With that considered, we can identify three more pastoral applications. One, since fasting improves memory, then we should pair fasting with reflection, especially by writing down our reflections. This does not need to be every day, but we can spend one to two days a week, maybe at the middle and end of the week, reflecting on the other days. Two, since fasting improves memory, this is also high time to practice memorizing, especially verses from the Bible, even commit to trying to memorize whole psalms and passages from the Gospels. These will become ways for you to meditate without having to pull out your phones or anything else for that matter. You can be alone walking or at the gym or waiting for an appointment, and you can bring the psalm back to mind and pray it and think about its meaning. 3. The effect that fasting has on learning means that it would also be high time to read the Bible and also spiritual literature like the writings of the early church because our minds would be learning easier and faster as it was demonstrated on the maze test mentioned in the article. Further, as the article mentioned that fasting reduces oxidative stress on the brain when fasting is practiced regularly from the late teenage years through the middle age years, then it will allow our brains to continue reflecting, remembering, memorizing, and learning for much longer periods of our life than if we never practiced fasting. It is interesting that these three applications that can be drawn out from the science on fasting are already practiced by the church. Perhaps this is why the church in her wisdom, which was guided by the Holy Spirit who dwells in her, placed seasons of fasting twice a week, so that the rational soul which bears the image of God in us would receive a help in asserting itself over the appetites, so that we could continually have an opportunity to grow into the likeness of the original image, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, by fasting and pairing it with prayer, almsgiving, reflection, memorization, and learning the treasures of our inherited Christian tradition. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.